Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Let's get to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we are this morning in the final message in our short little series at the beginning of the year that we've entitled Gospel Culture this morning in this theme of the weekend about our responsibility as a church to be on mission for the gospel and the cause of Christ in our city and in the world. We are looking at the impact that the gospel should have on us as a local church in as much as it is deploying us out into and to our neighbors and the nations. And so to do that this morning, we're going to work through a beautiful passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible, as always, I would love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. If you do not currently own a Bible, let that be our gift to you. Don't only open it this morning and follow along, but then keep that Bible as our gift to you. And if you're not used to looking up verses or scriptures in the Bible, you can find the verse that we'll be in today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, on the page numbers that are listed there. Both of those Bibles are the same version, but they're two different printings. So on one of the Bibles, you can find it on page 966, on the other, 756. As you're finding 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let me celebrate with you and uh, joyfully announce that even as we are meeting this morning, simultaneously, uh, our church plant, the church that we have been forming here internally, Fountain City Church is meeting even right now for their first service. I've been exchanging text messages with David Baum, and he's so excited and wanted to send his love and gratitude to you. And also, great news they, uh, just this week, they had a few meeting locations that they had as a possibility uh, that were less than ideal, waiting on something that was more ideal. And just this, just a few days ago, it was finalized that they are meeting at a church location down in, you know, where behind the medical center where those five roads kind of come together. It's the Eastern Heights section of our city. Uh, down from the WRBL TV station. There is a large church there called Eastern Heights Baptist Church, which has a very small congregation, but a very large building. And they have several large fellowship halls that they graciously are allowing Fountain City Church to meet in. And so they are meeting at Eastern Heights Baptist Church in one of their big fellowship halls. That is a wonderful location for them. It's a church building. It's going to be identifiable to people. This other uh, aging small congregation is very gracious in letting them use that space. And so uh, in just a moment here, we're going to pray for Fountain City Church as they meet for their first service today and ask that God would bless them and plant that church to the glory of God. So in fact, let's do that. Let's pray for Fountain City Church right now, and we'll pray for God uh, to bless us as we gather as well. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your kindness to us that you from this body, uh, because of your grace and your sovereign will, have, have planted another church here in our city. And we pray even now 
for David and Marie Baum and their core team that even as they're meeting, worshiping, opening up your word, pointing one another to Christ, calling unbelievers to faith in Jesus, that you would be glorified through Fountain City Church, that the saints would be encouraged and edified, and that unbelievers that would come today and in the subsequent Sundays for decades to come would be called to faith and repentance, that they would turn from idols that cannot satisfy, and they would turn in faith and trust and life and joy in Christ through the ministry, the gospel ministry of Fountain City Church. And we pray, God, for your grace upon them. And let them know that, that their big brother, in a sense, Crosspoint, is cheering them on in Christ. And now, Lord, as we, as we turn our attention to our gathering and, and the word that, that you have for us to read today and to think about, I pray that we as a church as we think about on this missions weekend where we want to think about who we are in light of what you have done for us and in light of what you have called us to, Lord, give us a a beautiful, holy discontent with where we are as a church and where we are as individual followers of Jesus in regards to how we are carrying out your mission. And produce in us not condemnation or despair, but conviction and earnestness to put our hands to the plow so that through us, Lord, you would call our neighbors in the nations to faith in Jesus and that we would be part of your unfolding plan of redemption. What a privilege. So help us with this, Lord. And even today, As we're gathered together, most of us trusting in you, but certainly some in this room are not. I pray, God, that you would even call people to faith in Christ today, that you'd give them a new heart to believe in your words, in your way, in what Christ has done. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So next week we'll pick back up in Genesis, and we'll be in Genesis chapter 28 and be in Genesis for the balance of the spring. But this morning we are looking at this idea of the gospel after it has hit our hearts and disrupted us and caused us to turn from idols and it has settled in us as a local church and that we as a body are called to display the gospel by the way we live together as a local church to an onlooking world. We are now going to think about our collective responsibility as a church to be on mission, in fact, to fulfill the Great Commission. In fact, that's Jesus' last instruction before he ascends to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God in victory and authority over all of the universe. Jesus says to the local church, not just to the, to the people that were gathered there with him, but to the, to the church for the ages, he says in Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been granted to me, and now I am commissioning you, go therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, I am with you always. That promise, that command is to us, and we are living in that age where Jesus is with us, sending us out on mission. And I want us to look at this text today where Paul is writing to a local church and explaining to them what this ministry looks like in his life and in their life and in our lives. So let me read through 
and then we'll work back through. I want us to, as we look at this, look at two things in this text, and then we'll spend some time applying it to our lives as a church, and then we'll come around, as is our custom on the first Sunday of the month, we'll come around the Lord's table and receive communion together. So there's two things I want us to be thinking about as we look at this text, is the message and the mission. The message and the mission of the local church. Let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. I, you know what? I'm not going to say it, and so by saying not saying it, I'm going to say it. This text is so beautiful. <laughs> ah, oh, this is such a beautiful text. Come on now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's holy and inspired word. So what's the context of what we're parachuting parachuting down into here in 2 Corinthians 5? Well, much of the purpose of 2 Corinthians 5 is Paul defending his ministry against critics. He was criticized in his day because there were people that were identifying themselves as sort of super followers of Jesus who uh, were 
were saying and claiming that because of their outward material blessing that they were evidently more qualified to be representatives of Jesus than Paul who didn't seem to have any seeming exterior uh, tangible proof of his blessing in his life and his ministry. And Paul is spending much of the letter of 2 Corinthians writing to them saying, no, he's saying that the, what validates me is that, that God has entrusted this message to me. And the, in fact, even the way that I'm enduring the trials that I'm facing is evidence that Jesus is better than any temporary blessing. So he's defending himself. And that's the point of the first few verses there, which may seem a bit confusing us, to us about how Paul is saying that I'm, I'm not writing about myself. I'm commending my ministry of the gospel to you against and opposed to this false ministry of these people that are trying to lead you astray. And then he utters some of the most beautiful and clear words about the message of the Bible, the message of the Christian faith, the message of the gospel. So we're going to look at that, what the message is. And here's what the message is in shorthand. And then we're going to work through looking at it in, in these words from 2 Corinthians 5. So the message of this passage, I think the message of the New Testament, the message, in fact, of the whole Bible is this, that God has reconciled a people to himself through the Son. That's the message of what it means to be a Christian, the message of the Bible, the message, the news, the gospel, the most important fact in the universe that God has reconciled a people to himself through his son. This is the message of the New Testament church. It's the message of this church. It's the message of this passage. Look again at verses 14 and 15. Paul writes this. He says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Who's he speaking of there? Clearly Jesus. He's saying that Jesus died for all. He's saying that Jesus is, has died in the place of. He is the substitute for all. And Jesus in his death takes the punishment or the death that we deserve. That's what the for means there, that Jesus has died for us. So Jesus on the cross is doing more than just laying down his life as a great example of love, although certainly it's that. He's laying down, it's more than just him laying down his life as an example of servant leadership, although certainly it's that. But at the very core of the Christian message is this news that we are rebels. We are Fallen, we have rebelled against God. Every person in this room, no matter what, what background you come from, what, what type of home you grew up in, what type of religious background you are from, what country or neighborhood, whatever, whatever you have come from, this is the common denominator of everybody in this room that we are all born in sin. We are born as rebels. Whether we are obvious in our public rebellion or whether it's internal self-righteousness and moralism thinking that we're better than other people the bible is very clear friends that we have rebelled against god and because of our rebellion we like our first parents are separated from god adam and eve separated from god in their rebellion and we to be separated from god who alone is the source of life is to be dead in fact, that's what the Bible calls us. It says that we are in our natural state, 
dead in our sins. And we are awaiting the right and just punishment that is ours. And this is saying that Jesus is intercepting that punishment. He is substituting himself for and bearing the punishment that we rightly deserve. And Jesus can do this because unlike us, where we have disobeyed God, whether obviously and externally or whether internally with self-righteousness and idolatry, Jesus has completely obeyed God in his life as a real man. But he's not just a real man. He is fully God. The Bible is clear. And Jesus as the fully perfect man and the eternal pre-existent holy God, God the Son, lays down his life on the cross and absorbs the punishment for us. That's what the for is there. I think that's a preposition. Is it a preposition? I'm sure I'll get emails even right now if it's not a preposition, but I'm getting one north and south there. Are you giving me a north and south? Okay, so that's a preposition. That is such an important preposition. He died for us in our place. And he bears the wrath of God. And that's why it says right after that, that therefore all died. So the death and the punishment that all of us should have died, Jesus died for us. And our death, Jesus died for us on the cross. So just like in Adam, we all sinned, the Bible says. You know, we were born sinners. We were, we were born with that spiritual DNA. Just like my son was born with an ability to grow a mustache as a fourth grader because he soaked every bit of Mediterranean Italian blood out of me. He had no choice. It just was there in the class picture. Creepy little Arthur Fonzarelli kid in the fourth grade. Because that's his nature. Well, we are all born in Adam. And his sin is imputed to us. Likewise, the good news of the gospel is that we, when we trust in Christ, our, our death is folded into Jesus' death. And he dies for us. Therefore, all of us who are trusting in Christ have died because Jesus has died for us. That's what this verse is saying. Friends, that's the heart of the Bible. That's what it means to be a Christian. To know that you, in and of yourself, in your natural state, are an enemy of God. But Jesus bears the punishment that should have been yours and absorbs it and satisfies it. Doesn't just take most of it, but takes all of it. That's why Paul can write in Romans 8, 1, There is now, therefore, no condemnation left. It's gone. It's extinguished. It's satisfied because of what Christ has done in his perfect death, his perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection over sin, death, the grave, and all of its consequences. And that's what Paul is saying here, that he died, therefore we need not die because he died for us. And how does he do this? He does it by laying down his life on the cross. Look at verse 21. Look at this. Maybe one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said that this is the great exchange. Verse 21. For our sake, as us who are sinful by nature, he made him to be sin. So Jesus on the cross bears, actually becomes our sin. He bears our sin. 
He knew no sin. Jesus was perfect in his life here on earth. And clearly, he's the beautiful, holy, pre-existent, eternal son of God. So Jesus bears our sin. He takes our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's a a trade here going on, an exchange, as Martin Luther called it. He takes our sin and the righteousness that he has accrued in his perfect life and the righteousness of the Holy Son of God is then given to us. What a trade. He takes our sin and he removes it and he gives us his righteousness and we now are in Christ through our faith and trust in him. Now, one question that you may have is, does this, does this passage here, verses 14 and 15, Let me read it again, in fact. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Does this teach, does this verse teach that that everybody eventually uh, goes to heaven? Notice there how it says that he died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. Well, if this was the only verse in the Bible that had anything to say about Jesus' work and the extent of its application, we might conclude that that means that everybody, all, eventually make it to eternal life with God. But when we read this verse in conjunction with the rest of the Bible, we realize that the Bible cannot and does not contradict itself. And there are many places that speak of the judgment for those who do not repent and trust in Christ. So there are only two types of people in the world. We're clear about that. We've gone through, I don't need to do the Mexican food analogy for you again, I hope. But there are those who are trusting in Christ and who are in Christ and will live with him forever. And there are those who are outside of Christ who will, friends, because I love you, I need to remind you of this occasionally, that to die outside of Christ is to die facing the punishment that is still on you. Because if you die outside of Christ, you're not trusting in Him. That means that His death, His sacrificial wrath-absorbing death is not covering you. And the Bible is very clear that to die in that state apart from Christ is to enter into eternal torment and punishment. And the Bible says that that's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so we know from the rest of the Bible that not everybody makes it to eternity with Christ. And so what does this all mean? I think that clearly that all is talking about not all people without exception, meaning every single person. It means all people without distinction. In other words, men and women, Jew and Gentile, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, every tribe and tongue and nation, there will be all types of people. Paul is writing in the context of a church that's wrestling with this Jew-Gentile issue. All types of people and all those who believe All those who trust, there is not a person in this world who trusts in Christ, who does not receive all the benefits of this glorious gospel. And he says then in verse 15, which I think is one of the beautiful passages in all of the gospel, the beautiful promises, he says that he died for all, that those who live 
might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Did you, did you catch that? He died for them so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. The gospel doesn't just come to forgive us of our past failures, but to free us so that we are no longer enslaved to our own selfish pursuits, but we now can give our lives away to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who doesn't lead us into a joyless, tucked in, Ned Flanders, culture abusing, sort of, sort of fundamentalist killjoy with our teeth gritted, mad at everybody because they don't vote the way we do in presidential elections. But he frees us to give our lives away, which is joy, right? He he frees us to give our, our treasures away and not hoard them because giving our treasure away is so much more satisfying than hoarding it. He frees us to live our lives sexually in the way that he calls us because giving yourself To one person in marriage between a man and a woman is not to miss out on all of these broken counterfeit pleasures, but it actually leads you into joy, like true, secure, satisfying joy, which is better than the counterfeit that the world throws at us. So you see, the lie is often is that to live this way, sold out for Christ, to respond to him, is to somehow find yourself in some sort of locked down state, but that is absolutely false. He frees us to finally no longer be enslaved to ourselves and our passing worldly passions and live for himself on mission for the glory of God. And then I think one of the sweetest verses, I know I've said that about four or five times already, but here's another one. Verse 17, isn't this good? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this is true of you, friend. This is true. If you've turned away from trusting in yourself, I'm not, I'm not saying that you understand everything there is about the Christian faith. I'm not saying that you've got the Bible mastered. I'm not saying that you're not still dealing with some sin that is just absolutely punching you in the mouth. But this is true of you if you have turned away from trusting. If your hope is not in your own life, your own righteousness, your hope is in what God the Son has done to bear the wrath of God the Father for you, if that's where your hope is, this is true of you. You could do this because God made you alive so that you could even have that faith. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That means you were dead and now you're alive. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, behold, the new has come. I love this quote. I don't have it on the screen by John Newton, the great hymn writer. He said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be. But still, I am not what I used to be. Praise God. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that comes from 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Oh, praise God for the newness of being in Christ. So that's the message of the universe, of the Bible, of the New Testament, of the church, that God 
has reconciled a people to himself through the Son. That's what we're called to preach. And that's what Paul is saying was his ministry. And he now is saying to us through the, the Holy Spirit is saying to us through Paul that this message has now been given to us as our mission. So point number two, the mission. And the mission is clearly this. God sends the reconciled as ambassadors to the unreconciled. God sends the reconciled as ambassadors to the unreconciled. Notice the impact that the message has when received, what it produces in those who receive it. Look again at verse 11. It produces this holy fear. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the serious awesomeness of the holiness of God, it produces in me this reverence, this fear, this right fear of God that chastens us and makes us want to persuade others. Notice in verse 13, it produces in us, or should produce in us, a lack of the fear of man. So we should be rightly and reverentially fearful of God and His holiness, and that should produce in us a lack of the fear of man. Verse 13, he says, for if we are beside ourselves, you know what that means, right? That's what you say about somebody when you think they're crazy. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So Paul is saying, I don't care what other people are saying about my ministry and about who I am. It means nothing to me because I am dominated by a greater fear than the fear of man. And it's the reverence that I have for the holy awesomeness of God. And it produces in me a freedom from what people think about me in and around my world. So it doesn't only produce in us a holy fear or a lack of the fear of man. It produces in us a, a humility. Look at verse 16. He says that this message, when received from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What's he saying there? He's saying that this has produced in us a humility where we see all people, Jew, Gentile, even Christ. We were, he, Paul is referring to his own view of Christ before his conversion, and he said, I didn't think that he was obeying the laws he should as a Jew, and so I was actually out to persecute the people that followed him. And he was, he was viewing and judging Christ on this sort of horizontal, horizontal sort of platform here. And I think we can take this as a, as, a, as a broad application that we're so quick to judge people how they're different from us or maybe they come from a different culture or do things differently or have a background that maybe intimidates us a little bit and we are so quick to judge them or regard them according to the flesh when the Holy Spirit comes, seizes our hearts, reconciles us to God and humbles us and realizes and pushes us to realize that God has a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and it is our great privilege to regard them not through some horizontal lens of culture but as people created in the image of God that God has sent to us and put in front of us for his glory. 
Last night, if you weren't here, I cannot encourage you more strongly or highly than to go to our website in a couple days when we have the video of last night's message posted. Grady Smith, an associate pastor of Lakeview Baptist Church in Auburn, Alabama, came and spoke to us last night about ministry to internationals. And he spoke to us about, he did some research about the Columbus-Fort Benning area, and he said that there are, according to his research, over 110 different nationalities, people groups, countries represented just here in our area. A lot of that has to do with Fort Benning and, and the military and a lot of the foreign soldiers that come and train. And we heard from Ron and Mary Mullins about a program that they and others in our church are involved in where they get email notifications from a ministry called International Friendship Ministries, which has a a table out in the foyer which I want you to visit that helps to minister to internationals. God is bringing the internationals to our city from, from Middle Eastern countries, from countries that the gospel is close to, and he's bringing influential leaders of their culture and military and society to us. And there's this program out at Fort Benning which is desiring to link these men up with willing American families to have them into their home just to share a meal with them. And maybe as the Spirit leads testify about the most important news in the history of the universe. And there's 110 different countries represented even here in Columbus, Georgia. Praise God. And we, the gospel, when it hits us, it produces in us a a sort of lifting our gaze to get outside of our neighborhood or our rooting interests or our school of choice and to see that God has people from every tribe and tongue, even people from our city. In fact, I would venture to say that we probably would have more of a cultural gap for people on the south side of Columbus than we would from somebody from Europe. And so God is, is, is bringing people to Christians to be reconciled. And then in verse 18 and 20, notice the impact that this message has. It puts God's people on mission. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us. Listen to this, church. He gave us. He gives us. He gives us. This ministry, this, this duty, this mandate, this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So God has a message, and it is the good news of the gospel. He's reconciled the people to himself through his son, and he's put us, Crosspoint, this local church, on mission to be ambassadors, to have this ministry of reconciliation to the unreconciled. So I end with this, a few observations on obstacles to this mission and how we are striving to do this at Crosspoint first obstacle to us being a church or individuals that live in response to the gospel in this way is, I think, just immaturity. Maybe some of you just, this is the first time you've ever heard the 
mandate and the mission that God has for the New Testament church. Maybe you're a very young Christian and you've never heard that. Okay, well, you are now responsible. You are now no longer immature. You have the information. But maybe, maybe you're like some Christians that have been Christians for like 20 or 30 or 40 years. And it seems like they're still like in the baby phase, you know? I pray that that would not be the case of anybody in this room, that you wouldn't be a Christian who's just like stuck in infancy. And I think in the Bible Belt, there's a lot of Christians like that in our city. They've been floating around from church to church, going to Bible studies for decades. And there's it's like no burden. There's no humility. There's, there's no call in their life to be ambassadors for the gospel. Oh, may not be so of this church or of you or of me. I think the second obstacle is just the culture we live in of self-absorption. Oh, come on, friends. We get everything fast, don't we? God forbid that if tonight a storm were to come through and some rain were to affect the satellite reception on my TV, (laughs) right in the middle of a football game. And I were have I would have to wait 30 seconds to miss something as consequential eternally as a bunch of guys running around in tight pants chasing a ball. One time, I had to call a help center and they put me on hold for like Three minutes. Do you know how long three minutes is? Do you know that sometimes when I'm on the internet and the other people that live in my house are on the internet and I'm wanting to download a pointless, completely inconsequential video that it will buffer for like minutes. And I got to wait because my kids are doing homework and my wife is watching some scrapbook video. (laughs) Do you see what this produces in us, the air we breathe? And we take it to God, don't we? Give me what I want now. I didn't like the song. I didn't like the way that person did that in children's ministry. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. Nah, 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 nah. And we are, let's admit it, friends, we are the most self-absorbed, narcissistic culture in the history of civilization. 
And we get mad at each other and we blame each other for the meager results of the Great Commission. Oh, that God would destroy our self-absorption. Even now, like right now, just, just God crush our selfishness, like my selfishness. I'm not beating you, it's me, like I'm the worst person I know because I know myself best. And my petty addiction to my preferences and my opinions stymie my effectiveness for the gospel. And I venture it might have the same impact on you. Third, oh, we're insecure. Man, we're so, we care so much about what other people think about us. We're dominated by social media. So, you know, if I really put myself out there for God to witness to a person, they may think I'm goofy. If I do this, whatever. I mean, come on, we're, we're racked with insecurity. It's, it's connected to immaturity and self-absorption. And then fourth, finally, Maybe some of us have not truly concluded that the gospel is true. Did you notice what verse 14 said? It said, for the love of Christ controls us. Like it controls us. It dominates us in a sweet way. It's like, it's like beautiful, overpowering dominance. To be controlled by the sovereign, beautiful king of joy is a sweet release. And the love of Christ controls us And we've concluded that one has died for all. Friends, do you really believe that? Do you really believe the message of the gospel? Do you believe that those who die outside of Christ face eternal torment forever? Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Do we really believe that as a church? And if that's the If that's the case, then, oh, that that would control and push us outside of our self-absorption and outside of our insecurities, outside of our preferences to our neighbors and the nations so that they might hear and respond. So, finally, how are we striving to be on mission at Crosspoint? Very quickly, how we gather together. I reject this idea that a church is either about discipleship or evangelism. I think those two things go together. I think that by, and that was our argument a couple weeks ago as we talked about the gospel displayed in the local church, our desire is that when we gather on Sundays or in Sunday morning classes or in midweek fellowships or any context, that we would be a people that go deep in the word, that talk deeply about doctrine and truth, and that that in and of itself, by the humble way that we do it in a way that the culture around us can understand, it becomes a powerful aroma to them. So just even how we gather, that we're not here for ourselves, that people that have been Christians and are members of Crosspoint come into these doors with their head on a swivel to care for people, to reach out to people, to, to, to love on and encourage and get to know and invite to lunch people from, from different 
walks of life, this beautiful aroma of, of care and gospel priority that, that should permeate our gatherings. Secondly, how we're striving to live in this great commission fulfilling way as just ordinary people in a local church is our life together in community. I see this as being primarily through community groups, reaching out to neighbors, to unbelieving friends, inviting them into that context as a community group, praying for people in our spheres of influence who are unbelievers. Oh, that our community groups wouldn't just be little holy huddles for people that are just praying for these, these, these little inward things, but that we would see our life together as being a witness to those around us. Third, striving together is encouraging one another to be better, more effective personal witnesses. Some of you are, some of us are just okay with not really knowing how to share the gospel with people. And we have a midweek fellowship that we did a, a few months ago where Wayne took us through the gospel and personal evangelism and gave us encouragement on how to share our faith. And there's one sister in this church who that seemed to light a fire under her. And these Jehovah's Witnesses have come to our house and she is engaged in a month's, months, uh, week after week of meeting with these two young ladies, sharing the gospel with them. Now, recently, it looks like maybe one of these young ladies was, was offended by what she was hearing from the gospel. Clearly, that's been discouraging, but this sister is holding up Christ, and we're believing that God is planting a seed. And this is this, this sister in our church, I won't mention her name, is to embarrass her. She, she's a wonderful person, but she's, she's just like the rest of us. She's just an ordinary person who, who just was seized with the glory of God, and she concluded, like she concluded she concluded that Christ died for all, and he's the only hope. And I had a conversation with her last night, and she was moved to tears because of her burden for the souls of those two ladies that she's been sharing Christ with. And she's just, she's just an ordinary person. And it's there. The resources are there. It's there. We've got books and teaching and, and audio and, and, and website. Come on, let's, let's, let's avail ourselves of these opportunities and let's not just be people that come Sunday after Sunday and then just go to lunch to be rude to waitresses, gossip about one another, take a nap, and do it again the next week. Come on, that's a pathetic way to live. That's, that's not gospel living. It, that's not the type of living that Paul calls us to be freed from ourselves for the glory of God. Fourth, organized efforts locally, partnering with local ministries, partnering with people like International Friendship Ministries that I told you about. If you're interested in, and I pray that we would flood this organization with people from Crosspoint willing to go to these occasional quarterly socials where they bring in officers from all around the world and link them up with American families just for fellowship, to invite them into your home. If you're interested in how to do this, I encourage you to speak to Springer, to Ron or Mary Mullins, to Elaine or Frank Sochet, and they will link you up with how to do this. There are 110 countries in our city, in our area, that are sending their best and their brightest to us to just for friends, for a meal. What an opportunity, Lord willing, that God might use that as an open door for the gospel. 
Locally also, we're clearly, we want to plant churches. We just did that this week. We want to plant more churches. But another thing that we want to do is that we want to come alongside existing churches and help revitalize them. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are brothers on this staff who are wonderful preachers of the gospel. In fact, probably better than me. And I, you know, unless they spike my drink with something that knocks me out, I kind of want to do this for a little while longer. And so let's deploy these brothers to these other churches. Let's have men come through Crosspoint and have this to be a gospel-rich people. And every couple of years, we maybe plant another church or we send a young man who's on staff at Crosspoint to a church in our city that's dead and dying, that has a big building with 20 people. Send them that young man and, and to pastor that church and to revitalize the gospel witness in that place. Oh, praise God. I, I told that a couple, years, a couple months ago at a one another meeting and some sweet dear sister from Crosspoint came up to me in tears. She says, no, no, I don't want anybody to leave. I don't want these other brothers or other pastors, Will and Robert and Wayne. Keep them, keep them here, keep them here. And I'm like, yeah, sister, I want to keep them here too. But the gospel pushes us outside of ourselves. And then we want to organize efforts globally. Just as Past fall, we sent the first couple from Crosspoint to be long-term, Lord willing, lifelong missionaries to an unreached community in Central Asia and an unreached people group. And I pray that they would be the first of many. I pray that there are people in this room. I pray that there's a young couple, even today, that God is stirring your heart to give the balance of your life, Lord willing, away to the service of the gospel to people on the other side of the world. I pray that there is a couple that is approaching or already in retirement in this room today that would be freed up from the enslavement of pleasure and recreation in their retirement years and that they would completely shift focus and consider giving the balance of their retirement away to the service of the gospel in some faraway place. I pray that this church would be marked by wave after wave after wave of people that are desiring and willing to leave this place and go to the unreached people groups of the earth and that those of us who stay would be radical in our generosity to give, to send, to enable, and that we would be a church that is marked by the ministry of reconciliation, whether it is to our neighbors on the other side of town or to the nations on the other side of the world, and that we would be free. We would be free from this death grip that we have on our comfort and our lives, and God would free us up to on that day when we breathe our last, we are thoroughly used up, that we have nothing that we are leaving behind, but we are thoroughly used up, spent, expired for the sake of the gospel, and we will stand before Christ that day, and he will say, well done, well done, well done. Now enter into your joy and rest. Oh, friends, there is nothing more satisfying than that, and that is our heart's ambition. May we be a church 
that lives this way for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. Ushers, if you would come and be prepared to serve and wait on us for communion. Friends, how appropriate that we would come to the table on a Sunday like this. This bread and this cup that we are about to partake of, first, it's for Christians. If you're not yet trusting in Christ, we are so thankful that you're here. And not because we want to exclude you or embarrass you, but because we want to care for your soul. You should not come and take this meal because we don't want you to confess something that you don't truly believe. Because when we come to this table, we're taking this little piece of bread, we're taking this cup, and we are reminding ourselves and reminding one another that we are in Christ, that we are feasting on Christ, and that He alone satisfies, and that He controls us. And we are His to deploy as He pleases. So we come to do that. Now, not just for a monthly religious tradition, but to examine ourselves in light of the beauty and glorious grace of Christ and what He's done on the cross, to renew our trust and faith in Him and to say to one another, Lord, You control me. And the satisfaction that is in Christ, who's the true bread from heaven, is better than anything that this world has to offer. So, Lord, free us from ourselves to be ministers of reconciliation to a lost world. If you're a Christian, you're a member of this church, or you're a member of some other church visiting with us, you're welcome to come to this table. Our custom is here is to take the elements to hold on to them. And then Reynolds will come and lead us to receive together as a faith family. Let's all stand, friends, and let me pray. After I pray, you are welcome to come to the usher that is closest to you when you are ready and receive the elements. Oh, Father, make us make us this type of church. Make us this type of people. that know and have concluded and are controlled by the love of Christ and free us from ourselves and counterfeit earthly pursuits and put all of us on the ever-increasing pursuit of joy that is being on mission for you. Do this in my life more and more and more and in the life of this church for the glory of your name for the joy of all peoples in Christ's name